If you haven't guessed it, we're going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit today. What is it? What are its characteristics? How do we develop it? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to first take a look at the overall picture, at the letter of which these verses are a part. This letter to the churches in Galatia is likely the first letter to a church written by Paul and the oldest book in the New Testament. Paul wrote this letter because there was a serious problem in the church in Galatia. The early church was composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Paul had built on the foundation that in Christ there is no difference between them. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 had decided that Gentiles did not have to undergo circumcision. This new family, this family of God, was open to everyone. Whatever race, whatever nationality, it didn't matter. Well, after Paul left Galatia, some people came in and began to teach the people that the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be truly accepted by God. Circumcision was a big thing for these Judaizers because for the Jews, it had been a major part of their identity, who they were. Now, this was the first case of a Jesus plus gospel. Now, to say that Paul was ticked off would be an understatement. I mean, he wrote that these teachers should be under God's curse, that they were leading the people astray. He even wished that they would emasculate themselves. Pretty harsh words. And this letter does contain some harsh words. Paul was serious about letting the Galatians know that they had been led astray and the danger that they were in. In this letter, Paul speaks a lot about freedom, probably more than in any of his other epistles. In chapter 2, he mentions the false believers who came to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. In chapter 4, he uses Sarah and Hagar as metaphors. And reminds the Galatians that they are children of the free woman, Sarah, and not of the slave woman, Hagar. In the chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 5, Paul begins by stating that it is for freedom that Christ has set them free. And in verse 13, he says, we are called to be free, but we are not to use that freedom as an excuse to indulge the flesh. Now, if you start preaching freedom, you run the risk that people will misunderstand. You might get accused of telling folks that they can sin all they want and not have to worry because God is gracious and we don't have to worry about the law. I remember hearing Steve Brown say that he was accused of encouraging people to sin with his emphasis on grace. And he said, I don't need to encourage them to sin. They're going to do it anyway. Paul was accused of this. 
In his letter to the church in Rome, he wrote, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So obviously our freedom doesn't mean that we can just live any way we want. Our freedom is a freedom from the bondage of sin and from the bondage of trying to please God in our own strength by keeping a list of rules. As we learned in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we desire to please God because he has changed our hearts. We learn to obey King Jesus, and as we grow in our faith, that obedience becomes more and more a part of who we are. Jesus distilled the entire law into two commandments. Love God with every fiber of our being and love others as we love ourselves. There are other passages in the New Testament to say if you do those two things, you have fulfilled the entire law. So our life is not a matter of looking for a rule or a set of rules to guide our conduct. But instead, it's a matter of letting the Spirit lead us and show us how to live in love in our day-to-day. It's a natural thing, like a tree producing fruit. Uh, Just as an aside, I think living this way may be more difficult than living the way some other churches try to live, because if they have questions... They just go and look it up in the Bible or ask their man of God to tell them. We have to think about it. We have to think, how is this thing I'm thinking of doing? Show love to God, show love to others. So in some sense, it might be a little more difficult, but it sure is worth it. In Galatians 5, verses 13 to 18, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, I told you it was there in other places. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. In verses 19 to 21, Paul lists the obvious works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. He states that those who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now notice that Paul calls these things the works of the flesh, things that a person living in the flesh does. A life of doing, whether it's doing the works of the flesh or trying to do the requirements of the law, is simply not going to work. It's not going to please God at all. In contrast, Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. (coughs) Did anybody, when you were younger, try to make themselves taller by hanging by your hands or hanging by your feet and hoping that gravity would do its job? I didn't either, but I had heard that there were people who did that. Well, it didn't work. I mean, obviously it doesn't work. The fruit of the Spirit is like that. It's not something that we work or produce by our own efforts. We have a fig tree in our backyard. It started producing figs last year. I think we got four out. And it looks like we're going to get a lot more this year. Well, a couple of months ago, I was checking on it. And I could hear it say, you know, I better get to work and produce more figs this year. I know I can do better. Now, you're probably thinking by now, oh, Fred's finally gone and lost it. Well, I may well have, but I didn't hear any talking plants. That's just silly. Plants that produce fruit don't do it with their own effort. They produce fruit because that's what they are, and that's what they do. They're fruit trees that produce fruit. It's natural. Now, again... That fig tree, when we went to all the effort, and believe me, it was a lot of effort to cut that thing out of the ground, get the roots, sawing, using an electric chainsaw on parts of it, and got it planted in our yard, we couldn't just leave it there. We had to water it. We had to feed it. We had to make sure it was in good soil, make sure weeds were away, and so on. As the... uh, As the figs start to come on, we have to cover it with net to keep the doggone birds away. It does take some sort of cultivation, some sort of effort there to produce the fruit. It's the same way with spiritual fruit. As we learn more of Jesus and grow in our faith, we naturally or supernaturally Produce fruit, showing who we are as children of God. So let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. You notice that Paul doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. He's not saying, well, you produce love over here, and then maybe later you can produce this fruit or this fruit. They're singular fruits that you produce in a certain order or whatever. Looking at it, it seems like there may be some sort of order, like maybe start with love and the others come along later. But it is one fruit. It's all part of the same package. So we can't say, well, God's doing a good job of making me patient. But all this other stuff, you know, he's just not doing that yet. No, he's producing fruit in us. And it has different aspects. So, if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, think back to Jesus' words, maybe later, or maybe now. 
And I think that you'll see a lot of parallels between the list that Paul gives us and what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at this fruit that the Spirit produces in those who belong to the Father. The first and the foundational aspect of the fruit is love. Love also comprises the two greatest commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Luther said, it would have been enough to mention only the single fruit of love. For love embraces all the fruits of the Spirit. Augustine is reported to have said, love God and do as you please. He has been misunderstood. I think he and Paul probably are on the same page here. If we truly love God, we will experience the freedom that's spoken of in chapter 5, verse 1. So what is love? It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. You can get that by eating a caterpillar. It comes from the word... It come, I couldn't help myself, sorry. It comes from the Greek word agape. A love more from the mind and decision than from the heart. It is a love that God shows us. He has decided to love us, and he will never change his mind because we do something against him. It's not based on feelings, but on a decision arising out of who God is. Husbands, we love our wives in the beginning because they're beautiful and they please us. They make us happy. They make us feel good as, as men because they like to see us. So that, you know, that helps us. And as they grow older, as we grow older, they still remain beautiful. They still make us happy. But the love becomes more of a decision. I will love this woman because she is my wife. Not because she's all these other things. Even though those things are probably still true. 1 Corinthians 13 describes this love. Patient. Kind, not jealous, not boastful, not proud, doesn't dishonor others, not self-seeking, not easily angered, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with truth, is protective, trusting, hopeful, persevering, it stands in stark contrast to the works of the flesh, which actually come from the opposite of love. The second part of the fruit listed is joy. A joy is more than just a momentary happiness or excitement. It's an abiding peace, no matter what the circumstances, even when they are terrible. Paul sang while in prison in Philippi because he had joy. 
A child of God can be racked with pain from a terminal disease or lose a loved one and not feel very happy. But they can have joy. Spurgeon said, believers are not dependent upon circumstances. Their joy comes not from what they have, but from what they are. Not from where they are, but from whose they are. Not from what they enjoy, but from that which was suffered for them by their Lord. It's definitely not something that we can produce by our own efforts. The next aspect of the fruit is peace. Everyone wants peace. Well, at least most people do. It seems that some people thrive on conflict. What is this peace that Paul puts in this list? Some of us a few years ago, maybe more than a few, marched for peace. Most define peace as the absence of conflict. A mother whose children are driving her crazy. Neighbors who clash over things like property lines, countries. That is a kind of peace, but it's not what is in mind here. The peace Paul writes about is more than just an absence of conflict. The Greek word Irene corresponds to the Hebrew shalom, which means a wholeness, a completeness, the presence of all good things. This peace can also exist in a child of God in the midst of the worst circumstances. Fruit part number four is patience. Patience is the idea of forbearance or bearing with something or someone. The King James translates it as long-suffering. One of the teachers I worked with a few years ago in a Christian school talked about how Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. And he said, you know, it's because sometimes dealing with little kids is suffering. I don't think that's what Jesus meant, but anyway. But long-suffering, I think, does a pretty good job of capturing what this idea entails. A lot of us can be generally patient. Just put me in a car and you'll see. Um, But we do have a boiling point. It's like the t-shirt that reads, this is my last nerve and you're standing on it. I saw another one that read, I love God, but some of his children get on my nerves. Well, long suffering will help us not to worry about that last nerve. It allows us to be as patient with others as our Father is with us. Luther said, Long-suffering is that quality which enables a person to bear adversity, injury, reproach, and makes him patient to wait for the improvement of those who have done him wrong. When the devil finds that he cannot overcome certain persons by force, He tries to overcome them in the long run. To withstand his continual assaults, we must be long-suffering and patiently wait for the devil to get tired of his game. Sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? 
We need the Holy Spirit to produce it in us. Next is kindness. The KJV translates it as gentleness. Kindness has been described as being benign, having tender concern, and being upright. God's kindness to us is what leads him to save us, to provide for us, to protect us. Kindness or gentleness will lead us to be tender, benevolent, and useful to others. Our actions and words will be full of grace. It's also something that is hard to do in our own power. That's why it's fruit of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can produce it in us. The sixth fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness is virtue lived out. It's a life motivated by righteousness and a desire to bless others. A good person will be selfless and will act on behalf of others. Our Lord is good. And as we grow in faith and become more and more like him, we will see the fruit of goodness produced more and more in our lives. Fruit number seven is faith or faithfulness. Both words are translations from the same Greek word. Faithfulness carries the idea of being steadfastly loyal and dependable. We can be faithful in our work, faithful to those we love, faithful to our church community, and of course, faithful to God. It comes from faith in God. And the more our faith grows, the more faithful we are. Faithfulness is not something that comes from a prescribed formula for life. You can't necessarily look up a rule that will cover every circumstance where you need to be faithful. There's not even anything in the book of Hezekiah. But as we depend more and more on the Spirit's work in our lives, we will be more naturally faithful in our day-to-day. The eighth and the next to the last of the virtues listed as fruit of the Spirit is gentleness or meekness, as it's translated in the King James. The Greek word, plautus, means mildness and gentleness in our dealings with people. In other passages, passages, it can mean teachable, modest, humble, generous, or considerate to others. Gentleness or meekness is a trait that we don't see a lot of in today's world, where everyone seems to be aggressively pushing themselves forward and their agenda and pushing others aside. We even see this in the church, as some seem to major in faithfully proclaiming truth in ways that are antithetical to the approach that Jesus and his disciples took. Isaiah 42 foretold what sort of person the Messiah would be. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice 
or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul wrote that the servant of the Lord must, be, must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. As the Spirit grows this fruit in a person, faithfulness and gentleness are combined and work together. <clears throat> the final fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Oh, that's a tough one. I'm going to step on toes here. Get mine out of the way first. The Greek word means temperance. The virtue of mastering our desires and appetites. Now remember that Paul taught a dangerous doctrine. The doctrine that Christ has made us free. And we are no longer bound by trying to keep a law that could never save us. So if we have unlimited grace, we can go ahead and sin all we want, right? As Paul said, God forbid. We have also been made free from the power of sin. Now, we still have a tendency to go back to the pig pen and wallow around every once in a while. That's why we need self-control. As that fruit grows and develops in our lives... We don't become sinless, but we do sin less. It's more than just self-control for our own good, but it's also for the good of those around us. And I think this fruit also can be combined with faithfulness and gentleness. Because if we're tempted to let someone have it because we want to be faithful, self-control can lead us to deal in gentleness. Just like all the other fruit, self-control is not something we can conjure up on our own strength. It has to be developed by the Holy Spirit working in us. Paul finishes this list by stating, against such things there is no law. Now, obviously, there is no law against these things. But Paul is also saying that a person who has this fruit doesn't need the law because they've already fulfilled it. One commentator says this is a masterly understatement. It draws our attention to the fact that the kind of conduct that Paul has outlined is that which lawmakers everywhere want to bring about. How many of you remember when you didn't have to wear seatbelts? I used to, on July 4th, go out for a drive and not wear my seatbelt just because it was July 4th. But I don't do that anymore. I have always worn a seatbelt. Even before the government told me I had to. Before they passed those laws. I don't wear a seatbelt. Because the people in Columbia or in Washington tell me I have to. I wear a seatbelt because I have a wife and two children 
now four grandchildren that I love. And I don't want anything to happen to me that's going to cause them grief or cause them to have to take care of me for the rest of my life. That's why I wear a seatbelt, not because of a law. That's what Paul is talking about here. We don't need a law as the fruit of the Spirit is produced more and more in us. In verse 24, Paul writes that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. We crucify these because of the work of the Spirit in us. In chapter 2, verse 20, we read that we have been crucified with Christ. So it's no longer we who live, but it's Christ living in us. And the life that we do live in the body, we live by faith in Christ. Another way of translating that is the life that we live in the body, we live by the faithfulness of Christ. It's his life in us that continues it. That's why we can crucify the flesh. Now Paul ends this chapter by urging us to keep in step with the Spirit. And to avoid becoming conceited, provoking one another, or envying each other. Now these negative things could come if we started looking at the fruit in others and try to compare ourselves to them. Either thinking too highly or too lowly of them or of ourselves. We might envy someone because they have... They have the Spirit has developed self-control in them to an unbelievable degree. That might cause us to speak against them. You know, they're just legalistic or, or whatever. Paul says, don't do that. As we remember that we've been crucified with Christ, that it's his life in us, then we are, and that we are free from trying to please God through our works, and that growth and fruit comes about through the Spirit in us. And as we till the soil, so to speak, by being in community, being discipled and discipling, and by spending time learning what our Father wants, we will begin to see more and more of that fruit produced in us. May God make us fruitful people.